Welcome to Tool Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss sound practices and super great resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. My name is Travis Montgomery. I'm the host of this here podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure and joy to be interviewing some uh, great pastors, scholars, authors, uh, students of scripture, and, and trying to decide better uh, how to understand the word, to discern it, and helping you hopefully to do that as well. Now, today is going to be the first of what is only going to probably be a handful of solo episodes. We've got some wonderful interviews with some great people coming down the line. I'm really excited for them. I think you're going to enjoy them and learn a lot. You will not hear uh, solo from me very often. Uh, but today, I wanted to talk about something I think is, is really, really worthwhile. How to determine whether or not a piece of potential historical context data is actually relevant to the text. We've all been there. You, you learn something about some kind of ancient Near Eastern custom, and you read some part of the Old Testament, and you go, oh, this must be referring to that. Or you hear a sermon talking about such and such a thing that went on in the Roman world, or a little piece of politics about the Roman Empire, and how Paul is maybe referring to this or that thing. And it's really easy to get lost in the weeds with that, to not know when something is actually relevant and when it's not. And so in this uh, mercifully short episode, we're going to discuss three questions for evaluating a piece of historical context data. Here's the first one. Pretty simple. Would the author and audience have made this connection? Now, this seems basic, and it's easy to just assume if you know about it here two, 3,000 years later, that surely the people living then knew about it. But think about this. You and I don't know everything about what's going on in various cultures around our world even today. And that's with the advent of television. That's with social media. Now, your friend may go through the Appalachian Mountains on hike and tweet this. I'm slithering through the mountains of East Tennessee. Okay. And you might, being a very culturally observant person, realize that there are a higher concentration of snake-handling churches in the Appalachian Mountains, and we can talk about Mark 16 some other day and how that applies to modern-day ministry. But that doesn't necessarily mean that your friend is making a reference to snake-handling churches. They used a kind of interesting way to describe hiking through the mountains. They said slithering. Okay, that is technically connected to the idea of snakes, but it doesn't mean that they even know about that. And even if they do know about that, it doesn't necessarily mean that they would be thinking about that. But somehow, in some of the insanity of our exegesis, we can sometimes go so far as to say, well, not only are they making a reference to snake handling churches, they're not even talking about hiking at all. They're actually saying, I'm doing snake handling in East Tennessee. And then you can just ask your buddy and say, uh, is this what you meant? And they'll tell you, no, not even a little bit, man. Unfortunately, we don't have that luxury with Paul today, but wouldn't it be nice? It's important to ask yourself, would the author and the audience have even made this connection in the first place? Uh, in, in my own research on Revelation and Roman litigation, uh, Roman tribunals, I really had to ask myself, uh, do the audiences here in, in these various churches in Asia, Asia Minor, would they even have been aware of some of these legal proceedings. I found some really awesome things. I'm going to kind of be continually referring to this research throughout because it was really eye-opening me on how to evaluate and whether or not to lend any credence to some historical background pieces. But I really had to ask. And so I had to go 
consult primary sources. I had to look at Roman coinage, and I had to say, not in person because, uh, you know, I don't have access to that kind of thing. But I had to, I had to look at pictures of Roman coinage and say, are, are these portraying these legal proceedings? You know, you look at uh, the way that Rome reinforced uh, what's been called sometimes a sovereign narrative of the empire through uh, official government endorsed sculptures or, or etchings or, or or coinage, and you see, yeah, actually, they they would have been aware of these legal proceedings, and so it's at least possible that the author and audience would have made this connection. It doesn't even mean that it's what they intended. Just because your buddy who said slithering knows about snake handling churches doesn't mean that's what he meant to convey. But it's at least possible, and that brings us to the second question. Does this radically alter a plain sense reading of the text? Okay, when we're talking about Revelation, a plain sense reading of the text seems a little bit like an oxymoron. But but think about Ephesians 2. Two key terms in Ephesians 2 are grace and faith. Okay, well, these are not purely religious words when Paul is writing them in the first century. Uh, Some have pointed out that they they play a role in what's called the client-patron relationship, in Greco-Roman culture, okay, uh, so there's this idea, you know, you you provide pistis, you provide faithfulness to a particular patron, you know, doing as they uh, desire of you, and they provide grace, they provide favor, carice, and and you could almost conclude, if you really, really forced it, that Paul is encouraging believers to bribe God with their faith for salvation. Okay, that is clearly not what he means, though. This clearly opposes the text itself, because the text itself says, not by works. You are dead in your sins and transgressions. Okay, if ever we're approaching the territory that usurps and completely changes the plain sense meaning of the text, because we've made some historical connection, then we are in serious danger of importing relevance that really isn't there. Now, uh, again, a plain sense reading of Revelation sounds absolutely ridiculous, but at the heart of Revelation 4 and 5, all of us, regardless of our view of what Revelation is getting at, it's clearly an exaltation of Christ as the one lion of the tribe of Judah mentioned, and two, the Lamb of God. And these are both positive and faithful terms. So given the Roman litigation motif thing I was talking about, It seems like Revelation is presenting Jesus in a way that parallels him to Pontifex Maximus, which was the Roman pagan high priest who, interestingly, was combined with the office of king. So he's both king and priest, at least starting with Augustus Caesar and definitely through Domitian, uh, which is at the latter part of the first century. But guess what that doesn't mean? It certainly doesn't mean that Jesus is being presented as an idolater. That goes against the plain meaning of the text. We want to take this clear thing and evaluate it against these obscure things. It it certainly doesn't mean the Bible affirms pagan worship of false gods. You know, elsewhere in Revelation, it mentions uh, the the false god Apollos. I mean, so what's the connection there? Well, it's clearly not an affirmation, given the plain sense reading of the text. If ever we are interrupting the plain sense reading of the text by importing some relevance from some potential historical context, we are on thin ice. And, And that brings up the second question. Sorry, the third question. Does this usurp the role of the relevant scriptural scriptural parallels? Now, obviously, not every writer of the New Testament had access to, uh, at any given time, a scroll of any given book of the Old Testament. 
but they were soaked, steeped in Scripture. They were knowledgeable about God's Word. And it is statistically, and listen back to my interview with Mark Giacobbe about the role of statistics in evaluating some of these kinds of things, in his case, literary context. But just statistically, it's it's more likely that that author is referring to something else in Scripture, something in the Old Testament, than he is even something in his own day, because that's the world that they thought and operated in. Uh, Todd Scasewater wrote an article on our website, exegeticaltools.com, about Jude 1.9, where it talks about the archangel Michael not rebuking the devil, but saying, the Lord rebuke you. It would be really easy to get lost in the weeds of non-canonical writings and Jewish folktales that Jude might have been familiar with and speculate wildly about exactly what he was referring to. But if you actually examine the Greek, the particular form of the word rebuke is used in Zechariah 3.2. And that tells about Zechariah's vision where he saw the archangel Michael say, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. It is far more likely, just statistically speaking, that Jude, who does does allude to non-canonical writings in other parts of his book, uh, is here talking about Zechariah 3. If this usurps the role of the relevant scriptural parallels, then we are in, in on dangerous ground. So, Roman litigation, again, in Revelation. Uh, my first task was to do justice to the wide variety, tons and tons and tons, of scriptural allusions in the text. And only once those are established can I examine this potential historical context piece. Well, as it turns out in this case, and hopefully this isn't just confirmation bias because of the subliminal fear of having to throw out my paper here, but as it turns out, I was writing this, and this is a couple years ago, but as it turns out, using a particular Roman tribunal proceeding as a framework, a very specific kind recorded in Suetonius, it actually reinforces the idea that Revelation is conveying with the Old Testament imagery it's using. It's using this imagery in Zechariah of a priest and king. It's using this imagery in Daniel 7 of God, the king, in his courtroom, which is also his throne room. And so there's this judge and king and priest thing all coming together just in what everyone agrees are the Old Testament scriptural allusions. And so... Viewing Jesus then as being presented as the Pontifex Maximus, uh, viewing this as a particular kind of Roman tribunal, actually reinforces the idea that that this was intentionally connected. And that tells me that I'm at least on better ground. It doesn't prove anything by any means. And at the end of the day, we can't prove that anyone intended any particular kind of historical context, um, historical background imagery. I mean, we just can't do that because we can't ask them. However, we can get to what we'd call near certainty. I don't even know if this particular parallel is where I would call near certainty, but it's certainly better established when I go, okay, what does the rest of Scripture have to say? What other passages of Scripture is this author alluding to? What would that mean for the text? And then does this piece of historical context reinforce that, or are they conflicting? So those are our three questions. Would the author and audience have made this connection in the first place? Would they have even known about this subject, right? Secondly, does this radically alter a plain sense reading of the text? We don't have Paul's brain. We don't have John's brain. We don't have Peter's brain. We can't ask them. We have what they wrote. We have the text. Does the text contradict my idea? 
If so, I need to throw my idea out the window. And thirdly, does this usurp the role of the relevant scriptural parallels? Other scriptural passages first and then historical context pieces, because the most important historical context is redemption history, always. Hopefully this is helpful. Hopefully as you examine these kinds of things in your own study, you can keep this in mind. I am positive that I'm missing great questions that you could ask. I'd encourage you right in, share this if you'd like to. That's my shameless plug there, um, somewhat shamed plug. But share this and, and, and posit a fourth question, posit a fifth question. I'm sure you could come up with plenty. I hope this is helpful. I'm really excited to have some fantastic guests on in the coming months. You're going to hear about some really great resources, some really cool things coming up, and I hope you'll keep listening. But please, let me encourage you, write in, share, message, whatever you got to do. Let us know how or if this has been a helpful endeavor for you and how it can be even more helpful in the future. We want Tool Talk to actually encourage and help you in your study of God's Word, because that's going to make a difference in the lives of believers, and that's going to make a difference for the kingdom, and it's going to glorify God, and that's my hope. Again, this is Travis Montgomery signing off. Thank you so much, and keep listening. Mm-hmm.